The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Today, on the fifth Sunday in the season of Easter, our journey to therefore will be informed by two texts from the New Testament. First, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our second reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a, a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it, it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I 
could hinder God. When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, trivia question time. Are you ready? Are you awake? What is the last word in the Bible? Anybody know? Good, good. I heard it. If you're on a quiz show someday and your chance to win big hinges on what you know about Scripture, I don't want you to come back here and blame me for not knowing the answer. The last verse in the Bible can be found in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 21, and it goes like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. So yes, fittingly, the last word in the Bible is amen. As a youth, I, I once heard a preacher hold forth on this aspect of the good book. It's perfect, he enthused, that the Bible ends with amen. This is all the evidence we require to know that Scripture is God's final word. It begins with creation in the book of Genesis, and it concludes with God's sign-off in Revelation. Amen. Everything we need to know to guide us in life and in faith can be found between the two black leather covers of the King James Bible. For a long time, I accepted this logic. Scripture was a playbook. If I wished to know God's opinion on anything, all I had to do was to consult, as the British like to say, holy writ. God's book was so perfect that it needed no additions, no amendments, no further tweaks to be an accurate compass in pursuing the life of faith. It would always point me unswervingly in the direction God would have me go. I accepted all this to be rock-solid truth right up to the point when I actually started reading the Bible. <laughs> Ironically, one of the clearest cases to be made against that preacher's declaration that God has already given us the final word on everything, against the notion that God has already said everything that needs saying can be found in the Bible. Think of it sort of like this. Imagine that I hand you a book and printed on the front cover of the book are the words, this book contains all the truths in the world. And then on opening the book, the first line that you read says, caution, the truths contained in this book are subject to change. Now wait, that doesn't happen in the Bible, does it? Oh yes, it does. And it causes quite a kerfuffle. Today's story from the book of Acts is one of dozens of times in Scripture in which people reconsider old truths. It gives testimony to a faith that changes, a faith that earnestly listens for updated guidance from God. 
Let's take a look. First, though, a little backstory. In the years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Peter is engaged in a vital ministry, sharing the story and teachings of Jesus all along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Peter approached this new faith in what you might call a traditionalist manner. Yeah, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, but he also believed that the message of Jesus was meant for the Jewish people, God's chosen ones, and not for the rest of the world, not for a more general group of folk Peter referred to as the Gentiles. Simply put, Peter was an evangelist, but only to a certain slice of the ancient world. Then one day, the Spirit commandeered the disciples' dreams. Peter had a vision in which animals previously declared unclean, unfit for human consumption in ancient Hebrew law, laws found in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, were spread out before him on a picnic blanket. Now, now even though this was a dream, Peter proves resolute. He refuses to pick up a fork and dig into this unconventional barbecue. He slides his chair back from the table and professes faithfulness to tradition and scripture. Nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. At this, a voice from heaven scolds Peter. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Three times the picnic blanket descends, three times Peter says, that's not what the good book teaches, and three times the Spirit responds, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. All the repetition in this text highlights the, the struggle gripping Peter's soul. This is, this is impossible, this is, this is a fever dream, this is just plain wrong. This is not what God's been saying, not what the faith has been teaching. This is not what I repeated in my catechism way back in youth group. All my life I've tried to follow the ancient laws, and now, now the Spirit says, bacon for breakfast. What the heck? What does it mean? Eventually the dominoes start tumbling in the disciples' head. God, it seems, has opened a door that Peter thought was shut. On the other side are, are different types of food, but also different sorts of people. Contrary to what I've believed all my life, the good news preached by Jesus is for everyone. Peter's worldview trembles and, and, and shifts the old Codes inscribed on his heart are revised, and as these changes wash over and through him, the disciple makes an astounding and really quite beautiful statement. If God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Who was I? that I could hinder God. 
Those words ought to be chiseled over the front door to every church in the land. All are welcome. Who was I that I could hinder God? These words point the faithful toward lives lived with humility and committed to faithful listening. Now, what does that mean? Let's start with the humility part. In this society, at this moment in history, humility is, I would argue, our least favorite virtue. We celebrate self-confidence. We act out of self-righteousness. We're pretty darn sure that our thoughts and feelings are right and good and true because, well, because they're ours. They belong to us. Too often we act as if we've got life all figured out, our neighbors all figured out, our enemies all figured out, and even God all figured out. We're pretty certain that the slice of the pie that represents things that we don't know has diminished so much as to be insignificant. I read this week that Elon Musk the richest man in the world who is or maybe isn't going to buy Twitter, dislikes consulting with others, and makes his business decisions on gut instinct. Of course Musk wants to buy Twitter, the most impulsive version of social media. Watching him maneuver, people swoon. This is the ultimate alpha wolf, someone worth emulating. Why not celebrate him? Isn't Musk's approach clearly a roadmap to success? Maybe. Maybe, ex except for the fact that for every Elon Musk who's gut instincts and a little bit of luck resulted in fortune. For every Elon Musk out there, we have met scores of people whose gut instincts have betrayed them and those closest to them. More often than not, a lack of humility plunges us into hot water. It resists course corrections. It locks us into doomed plans based on our faulty assessment of the world. Vladimir Putin, anyone? It sends us down paths that may no longer and may have never led to good results. Our corporate lack of humility is, is like a greenhouse gas. It's changing our social climate, and not in a good way. Consider the vicious circles we embrace. One person's lack of humility leads them into conflict with others who, surprise, surprise, also assert their rightness. Determined to win at all costs, each side dismisses their opponents and their critics as being either unhinged or immoral. This only serves to increase overall levels of vitriol and anger in the system. And then, rather than stepping back to grasp a reality that's bigger than we initially imagined, we double down on our own frightfully narrow perspectives. I have the truth. I know what is what and who is who and how things are going to turn out. 
A few years ago, I was having dinner with the recently retired head of a major American corporation. The dinner started pleasantly enough, but soon we were arguing about immigration policy, gun violence, and even human sexuality. At some point, my table companion leaned toward me in what he probably thought was a friendly way to end the conversation. Scott, he said, I've been around the block. I know what's wrong and what's right. I've thought a lot about that night, about us going after each other with the hammer and tongs of our convictions. But in the end, I always come back to those seven words and to the way in which every human heart is tempted to cut off debate with the same refrain. I know what's wrong and what's right. The disciple Peter would recognize this impulse. Yep, that's the way I was too. I thought I had my life, my work, my mission, my faith all figured out. And do you know what changed all that? God. It turns out that God's not done speaking. Who knew? Not done intervening in human affairs. Not done pointing us in hopeful new directions. God, Peter explains, messed with my confidence. One minute I knew exactly what was wrong and what was right. And then along came this vision. And what I saw, pun intended, was hard to swallow, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. My friends, I think the church owes an enormous debt to Peter. At every step in his story, Peter's exuberance leads to stumbles and bumbles. Still, the fisherman always seems to recover, and I put this down to his uncommon humility. Peter is willing to say, shucks, maybe I don't know everything. And that attitude opens a door. And through a crack in that open door, God's revelation shines. The ripple effect of Peter embracing the Spirit's vision in today's text is enormous. It changes the direction the whole direction of the early church. It made the Christian tent bigger, a lot bigger. In all this, Peter lays a challenge at the feet of this and every generation of believers. Rereading Peter's story, we must ask, what is God saying to the church right now? And how do I know that the vision I'm seeing, the words I'm hearing, the hope I'm drawn toward, how do I know it comes from God? How do I know I have God on the line and not, for example, my own ego needs or some flash-in-the-pan political agenda? I actually think that today's story offers a few pointers, three hints, if you will, for discerning when God's Spirit might actually be authoring a new vision for you. Hint number one, that God is on the line. 
the vision unfolding before you is a surprise. If the good book teaches us anything, it's that God works through surprises, through surprising people in surprising circumstances. Ask Mary, the mother of Jesus. Ask Joseph, her husband. God isn't the sort to pick up the phone and tell us stuff that we already know. In today's text, the Spirit upends Peter's faith, and it does this by extending God's love to people who Peter believed dwelt outside of heaven's boundaries. This revelation scrambles Peter's whole way of looking at the world. It's unsettling for the disciple. And when Peter shares his vision, it makes others around him uncomfortable too. In a way, this is Scripture's not-so-subtle clue. When people get uncomfortable in the good book, it's typically a sign that God is up to something. So, okay, hint number one, that it might actually be God on the line. The thing that we envision, that we imagine, that the Spirit is whispering in our ear is surprising to us and even uncomfortable for us. Hint number two, that it might actually be God on the line. It's costly. I don't mean to imply it'll take wheelbarrows full of cash to make every holy vision happen, to make the Spirit's dreams real, although it might. But by costly, I mean God's visions inevitably require something from us, some sacrifice, some change, some discarding of old perspectives. Consider again Peter. The path that the Spirit pointed this disciple down was costly. It would take Peter outside his comfort zone in speaking to Gentiles, in offering Christ's story to the whole wide world. The apostle was no longer simply updating the faith of his childhood. He was planting the seeds for a whole new religion, a religion that would bring Peter into conflict with the government of Rome and eventually get the disciple killed. Hint number two, that it might be God on the line. The vision is costly, sometimes very costly. Hint number three, that it might be God on the line. The circle is drawn wider. If we've learned to expect anything from God, given the trajectory of Scripture, it is that the Holy One loves to invite more people to the party. It's forever. God is forever trying to find those who are on the outside of the banquet in order to welcome them in. And in this, I think Peter ultimately embraces the Spirit's picnic blanket vision because it sounds so much like Jesus, because it's utterly consistent with Christ's consistently welcoming ministry. Hint number three, that it might actually be God on the line. It sounds a lot like Jesus. More invitations need to go in the mail. 
The book of Acts suggests three ways in which Peter's vision is legit. The vision is surprising, it's costly, and it expands the loving embrace of God. These criteria can shape our discernment, our attempts to listen for sacred truths in this time, our conviction that God is not done speaking. Like the preacher from my youth, I love the fact that the Bible ends with amen. <laughs> Unlike the preacher from my youth, I don't see this as God signing off. <laughs> Done and dusted, said what needed saying, read the book. <laughs> the word amen doesn't mean the end. Literally translated, amen means so be it. So basically the Bible concludes like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints, so be it. <laughs> My friends, Scripture ends with a prayer, with the hope that God will keep speaking, keep sending visions to the saints, keep offering good news and grace to a hurting world. In saying amen, so be it, at the end of Scripture, the faithful commit themselves to doing what Peter did, to listening with a humble heart, to keeping an open mind when the Spirit speaks, and to acting with faith like the disciples of old, stumbling along, doing our level best to fulfill heaven's orders until Gabriel blows his horn. In this perilous time, and in all times, incline your ear toward God. Open yourself to the whispers of heaven. Listen, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and supporting each other in the solidarity of the Spirit. Amen.